Father, here we are. We need you. Thank you for making yourself so available to us. Please touch our hearts afresh. Draw us closer to you. Give us hearts to truly know you, to see you for who you are. Lord, we ask that your voice would speak to us, that we'd hear your spirit speaking to our hearts through your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. He was baptized at the age of eight years old. A little bit later on, uh, he decided to be re-baptized. I think it was some, actually maybe it was 10 years later. But in high school, he would carry his Bible to school every single day. I don't know about you, but in high school, I would not be carrying my Bible to school. He would participate regularly in, in youth clubs at his high school. In fact, uh, here's a little bit that, that some of his, uh, his friends said about him. And in fact, in one of his school yearbooks, he led a weekly gathering of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And he said, I really feel like God is wanting me to be a leader in the church. So I felt like this would be a really good opportunity to exercise some of those principles and also just reach out to our campus with the gospel. He was described as a super nice, super Christian, and very quiet. Robert Long looked like this around this time. Nice Christian young man um, following Jesus. So you have to wonder, what happened? What, what went wrong in his life? What led from him being this young man to being the young man that shocked our nation this past week? So he went to the spas in Atlanta, Georgia, and shot eight people, six Asian women. What went wrong? What took place in a, in a young man who, who was a, a Bible-carrying youth group attending? His youth pastor said he would regularly attend a, a weekly youth group. Well, what happened? What, what went wrong in his life? He described it as a sexual addiction. And we have to wonder what went wrong. You know, we've been looking at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9. Go there with me. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9. And I'm sorry that we've gotten stuck on this verse, but I think there is so much here for us to grasp as we think about the seal of God and the mark of the beast. There is it's so much here. And as I stand here today, I don't know if you were here last week, but if you missed last week, the reality is that I'm a different person today than the pastor that talked to you one week ago. Did you know that you sitting here are a different person than you were seven days ago? The thoughts that you have been thinking over the past week, they have been actually physically shaping your brain. We learned last week about the neuroplasticity of the brain and, and how your brain has been transformed over the past week. How many of you have, have thought more thoughts about Jesus over the past week than you have in the past? Well, hopefully we can do that in the coming week if we didn't this past week. But the third angel's message starts this way. It says, then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, now, last week we looked at how this idea of the forehead and the hand, this was used in Deuteronomy, and it was used in Exodus to describe how God's people were to have the law of God on their foreheads. They were to have the law of God on their hands. And this is the imagery that John is pulling from from the Old Testament. But there's a, a key difference here that I don't want you to miss. They were to have the law of God on their foreheads and on their hands. Is that a little bit different than what you see here? What does it say? They were to have receive his mark on his forehead or his hands. There's a big difference here. There's, there's the idea that on the one hand, there are people who are assenting to what the beast is doing. And then on the other hand, there are those who they see this beast power who is representing himself as God. Second Thessalonians tells us he's representing himself and putting himself in the place of God. They say, this is arbitrary, but I'm going to go along with what he's saying. This is in contradiction or 
opposition to what is taking place with God's people. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Then I looked and behold on a lamb standing on Mount Zion with, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Every time that we see the seal of God on God's people, it is only in their foreheads. It's an ascent to something. It's, it's only taking place in their conscious thoughts. They are actually agreeing with the character of God that we've been talking about. And we see this more clearly unpacked in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 14. It says, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. This is a beautiful picture of, of where God is taking us, of what he wants to do as he transforms your thoughts through the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth moving in your life. Day by day, he wants to transform you to this place. Now, notice that it says there is no deceit in their mouth. Now, you think this is just talking about lying? It's, it's probably including that. But I believe it's talking about something more important, the theme of Revelation. And that is that they no longer have any of those deceptions about the character of God. They no longer are buying any of these lies about who God is, that he's arbitrary, that he's vindictive, that he's vengeful. All of that has been erased from their minds. And because of that, they are without fault before the throne of God. They've come to see God for who he is. Like we saw last week in Revelation 22, verse 4. They see him face to face, and his name, his character, is in their minds, in their forehead. That's where God is calling us to. And this idea of sanctification, this idea of becoming holy, it's a little bit, it's a little bit intimidating, isn't it? To think to become like God. And, and God uses this language. He says, I'm holy, so you should become holy just like me. What does that mean? Does it mean to be like Simeon the Stylite who we talked about two weeks ago who was putting himself up on a, a pedestal and, and lived there for 37 years so that he didn't come in contact with any of the temptations? Does it, it mean to just try to distance ourselves from the world? Is that the goal? Well, look at what Paul describes it as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12 says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. So, so let, your, let your love increase and abound to, to those right around you and to everybody on the planet. Let that love overflow every direction. And then he goes on to say this, So that he may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Sanctification is the work of God working in us to love the world the way that he loves it. And you notice who the active character in both of these verses is. It says, and may the Lord make you increase. Notice, it's God who is making us increase and abound in love. It's God who's increasing our capacity to be able to love the unlovable, the people around us who are difficult. It's God who is active in transforming us. And then it says, so that he may establish your hearts. Who's going to establish your heart? God. It's not through us. It's not through striving to be able to stand in our own strength. It's through giving ourselves over to this amazing and beautiful God. And then this idea that we looked at last week, that, that God is inviting us. He says, set my law as a seal upon my disciples. The, the law of God that, that we saw is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. He's the only one who perfectly loved one another and all. He's the only one who experienced this perfectly, who loved every single person that he came in contact with. And then in, we saw in Song of Solomon uh, chapter 8, it says, set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal on your arm for love is stronger than death. Well, this idea of being sealed is, is, is unpacked a little bit more in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Notice what it says here. Talking about sanctification, it refers to the Sabbath in a special way in relationship to sanctification. So, so you have the law of God as being essential in our being sealed by the Holy Spirit. But not just the law, specifically the Sabbath is a special part of this. Verse 12 says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Oh, this is incredible. 
It was saying, you know, here's the law, and the law is going to be sealed on my people. They're going to become more and more loving. They're going to abound in love. And the sign of that is this. Every seven days, I want for them to rest. To, to stop all of that striving to provide for themselves, to, to make the life work, to try to get everything put together in their lives and their homes. I want them to, to, to take a day off and to remember two things. I am their creator and I'm worthy of worship because they had nothing with originating who they are. You are here because of Almighty God, not because of yourselves. But not just that. Deuteronomy 5 unpacks it and says, you should... Worship on the seventh day Sabbath, you should observe it because I'm the one who brought you out of captivity. So we also recognize that when it comes to salvation, it's all of him. It's, he's the one who said on the cross, it is finished. I can choose to resist that or I can choose to accept it, but only through the merits of Jesus Christ is there any salvation. So this is what the Sabbath is a sign of. It reminds us that, that we can rest. We can take a day off. We can remember that we are resting in his love. And as we rest, we learned a few weeks ago, we are filled with strength. You have to sleep in order to have strength. It's the same in your Christian walk. You've got to rest in the love of God to have strength. And then he unpacks it a little bit further in Ezekiel 20, verse 20. You can remember this. It's twenty twenty vision of Jesus or of God, what he's like. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You want to know God? The seventh-day Sabbath is what helps us in a special way to get to know God. And this only makes sense. When we talked about last week, our neuroplasticity, how our thoughts shape our brain, what better way than to halt in the middle, at the end of the week, after six days of working, and to say, okay, I'm going to focus on loving God and loving people today. That's all I have to do today. I don't have to worry about any of the, the rest of my life. For right now, I'm going to focus on what matters eternally. That shapes your brain. That impacts your brain. That, that increases your capacity for knowing and loving God. But Jesus, being the fulfillment of the law, how did he treat Sabbath? Today I want to look with you at a story where Jesus gives us an example of what the Sabbath is all about. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, you can follow along with your Bibles, or you can read with me along on the screen. Luke chapter 4, this is just after the baptism of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness. And in Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus coming back to his hometown. Now think about this. Have you seen somebody uh, that you haven't seen for years and years and years? Have you ever come across a friend that, wow, I haven't seen you in 10, 15, 20 years? And then you go to sit down with them, and you had such a close friendship with them before, and as you begin to talk with them, you're like, do I even know this person? (laughs) They seem so different. This is The whole idea of neuroplasticity, your thoughts are changing you, your experiences are changing you, the words that you're focusing on, the things that people are saying, it's changing you. And so you're going to be a different person than your high school classmate when you come in contact with them, than than the person that they knew when you were friends in high school. So here he comes back to Nazareth, and it hasn't been that long. But they don't really recognize Jesus for all he is. Notice what takes place. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. What do we learn here about the Sabbath in Jesus? It was his custom to go to church on Sabbath, to go to the synagogue. That was his custom. So I'm glad you're here today. Welcome. You are following in the footsteps of Jesus. This was a part of Jesus' worship on the seventh-day Sabbath. He went to the synagogue. Now, in the synagogue, there would be the rabbi who would stand up and he would preach. And the focus at this time period, they recognized that it was time for the Messiah to come. And these rabbis would let loose on all of the prevailing immorality on the world around them. They would let loose on how the Romans had put them in bondage, and they would 
focus especially on this hope that they had. The Messiah is coming back and he's going to put an end to this. He's going to come with a sword in his hand. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah and he's going to crush all of these worldly forces around us and set up a nation that's a moral nation and we're going to be the ones who rule on this planet. So you came to church and you're like, yeah, amen, I can't wait to be relieved from this burden of these Roman soldiers who I have to carry their burden for them if they ask me to, who they have so much power over me. Can't be, wait to be relieved from these taxes to these dreaded Romans. And, and look at how immoral these Romans are. I can't wait for the Messiah to come and, with an army and, and just demolish them. This is the kind of picture that, that the rabbis were presenting in the synagogue from Sabbath to Sabbath. And so Jesus goes there and, and something else would take place. And sometimes we do that here. We have somebody come and they'll, they'll stand up in the front and they'll read a scripture. And this is the part of the service that Jesus takes place, takes part in. So he stands up to read. And as he does, he does some very, very intentional things. When he was going to read, you have to remember that it says he was handed the book of the prophet of Isaiah. Now, that word book, it's really scroll. And so he takes the, the roll, the scroll of Isaiah, and immediately he's going through it. and He's familiar with Scripture, so he's looking for something really specific. And when he had opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written. Wow. We skipped some slides there somehow. That's okay. We have our Bibles anyway. All right, so... Uh, Luke chapter 4, you may have to pull out that pew Bible in front of you because the slides seem to be missing, and that's my fault. Luke chapter 4, we're looking at verse uh, 18 now. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So Jesus reads this. And he's describing what his mission is going to be all about. So what is described here about his mission? One, who is it for? The first thing, it's the, the gospel to the poor. It's to address poverty. Not just physical poverty, but spiritual poverty too. And it's, it's a message for the brokenhearted. Those who need healing. He's coming as a physician. He's coming to bring healing to the hearts and minds of people. And specifically to, to set free captives, to bring liberty to those who have been held captive. And, and Jesus told the Jews really specifically in John chapter 8, whoever commits a sin becomes a slave to sin. He said that when the Jews were like, well, we haven't been in bondage. We're not captives. He said, well, what about sin in your life? What about that addiction in your life? What about those things that are chaining you down? What about, maybe it's that, Addiction to going to spas like Robert Long had. Then he said for the blind, he's coming to open the eyes of the blind so that the blind can see. To help people to be able to see. And he did this literally touching people's eyes. And he also did it for those who were blind to not understanding what God was all about on this planet. Then he said, I'm coming to set at liberty, the captives, to set them free, those who are oppressed. So we see here that, first of all, it's the poor. They have the good news preached to them. Brokenhearted or healed. The captives are given freedom. The blind are given sight. And the oppressed are given freedom. He says, this is why the Holy Spirit has anointed me. And then he ends by saying, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Does anybody know what that is a reference to? Verse 19, the favorable year of the Lord. That was to refer to the year of Jubilee. That was every 50 years you had the year of Jubilee coming along. You had seven years of seven. And then on the 49th year, the 50th year, you had the year of Jubilee. And on that year, you know what took place? It would be incredible if we had this in our society. All debts erased. Every captive who had sold themselves into bondage to be a servant to their neighbor, that person was set free. And all of the land, it would go back to your family. You might have run into hard times, but in that time, you got to get your land back 
didn't have to pay for it, but your, the land went back to the original family, and everybody had land in Israel. That would be an incredible reality to experience, wouldn't it? And he says, this is what I've come to, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I've come to give jubilee. Now, here's the thing. We don't have a record of jubilee actually being something that was practiced. It was an ideal. It was described in Scripture. And, and there are even times where it seems that they're actually, because they've missed it, they go into bondage because they haven't been celebrating the year of jubilee. We never have record of them actually doing this. But Jesus is coming to say, here I am. I am about to do this in your lives. I'm going to radically transform society. And you see this taking place in Acts chapter 2, that his disciples, they're holding all things in common. There, nobody has need among them. Truly, jubilee takes place when the Messiah arrives. Verse 20, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all were in the synagogue were fixed on him. I said, man, this is incredible. This is such a beautiful picture. And, and in this moment, their hearts are touched. They are being drawn. They're excited about this amazing thing that he's describing about the, what the Messiah is to do. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Only, all that's recorded is one line. But this one line turned the tide of opinion in that moment. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, hang on, Jesus. You didn't come uh, in this glorious manner with your sword and the army to, to set us free. Hang on, Jesus. I don't understand. What exactly are you doing here? You're saying that you coming and teaching in our synagogue, that you're doing something for the broken heart. You're calling me oppressed? You're calling me a captive? You're calling me poor? You're saying that I am the issue? Hang on. The Messiah is supposed to come and deal with everybody else out there. They're to deal with all the the immorality in the world around me. Verse 22, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Isn't this just that carpenter boy? Who is he anyway? He thinks he can just come in church and say, yeah, I am the Messiah, as if just sharing this beautiful Old Testament Scripture with us, as if that's what we need. We need a whole lot bigger person than this guy. You know, familiarity can breed contempt, as well as familiarity, if we're focused on the right thing, can breed love. Familiarity can also breed contempt. Notice what Desire of Ages says describing this, page 237. It says, But when Jesus announced, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, they were suddenly recalled to think of themselves. Self-focus here, right? And of the claims of him who had been addressing them. They, Israelites, children of Abraham, had been represented as in bondage. They had been addressed as prisoners to be delivered from the power of evil, as in darkness and needing the light of truth. The, the finger was pointed at, at themselves, rather than at what they liked to hear the rabbis talk about, about how Jesus was going to come and destroy everybody else. Oh, the Messiah was going to do that. Their pride was offended and their fears were roused. They're offended by this idea that, that Jesus is coming to heal their hearts, to set them free, to work on what needed to happen inside their own hearts. So Jesus, reading the thoughts of their mind, they don't go into detail in what they say to him, but he reads their thoughts and he says this. He said to them in verse 23, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Hey, you, you've come to Nazareth. You're so, such a great guy. Do all the miracles you did somewhere else. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. If you're such a great physician, well, let's see it. Demonstrate it. Show it to us. We want to see some, some of that, that amazing work that you've done, the miracle work that you've done. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up Three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. Do you remember that story? So Elijah comes to Ahab and he says, there will be no dew nor rain until I say so. And then he runs off and he hides at the brook Cherith. 
But after that, he's told to go to a widow. And this says, hey, there was a lot of widows. Elijah could have run to the, the widow over in Jerusalem. He could have run over to the widow over here. He could have run to any of the widows there in Israel. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Suddenly, they're really not liking what Jesus has to say. (laughs) Because they didn't like the Sidonians. They were idolaters. They were these heathen people. They, They were the problem. And that's who he sent Elijah to. And it continues. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Oh, now, now, now Jesus has done it. The Syrians, they were the ones who had massive armies who came and attacked Israel. They were the enemies of Israel. And Naaman was a captain of their army. And, and Jesus has the audacity to say, yeah, there were a whole lot of lepers around But it was only the leper over there in Syria who was healed. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. These people had grown up with Jesus. Jesus had been in their town for 30 years as a carpenter. And you know that Jesus lived a perfect life. It says that he grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. Obviously, they liked the guy. Because he was a loving person. And and yet, they're ready to throw him over a cliff. I have a question to ask you. Have have the teachings of Jesus ever made you want to throw him over the cliff? And if they haven't... Maybe we haven't really read the teachings of Jesus. Maybe we are blind to what they're pointing out about what needs to change in our own hearts. The transformation that he's longing to work and the healing that he wants to bring. Well, they're ready to throw Jesus over the cliff. And Desire of Ages continues, page 239, it says this, They had turned from him whose mission it was to heal and restore. Now they manifested the attributes of the destroyer. You remember the concept that that what we worship, Psalm 115 says, we become like it. What our concept of God is, we are molded by that. Our thoughts shape our brain and we begin to act like who we think God is. And they, they were dwelling on a Messiah who was going to come and destroy the heathen. And when they didn't like what Jesus said, they said, well, let's destroy him. (laughs) It's the natural outworking of their thought patterns. When Jesus referred to the blessings given to the Gentiles, the fierce national pride of his hearers was aroused and his words were drowned in a tumult of voices. They had national pride. Israel was going to become a great nation. We want to make Israel great. And we don't like these foreigners there. And that type of focus led them to reject Jesus and want to throw him over the cliff. We have to be really, really careful about where our focus is, how we think that God wants to operate on the planet. What is really important to him may not be what Christianity in general is telling us is important to God. We have to be really careful about our national pride. These people had prided themselves on keeping the law, but now that their prejudices were offended, they were ready to commit murder. Uh, They kept the law of God perfectly. They were there on Sabbath. They didn't need unclean meats. They went through all the motions and they were looking for the return of the Messiah. But the Messiah they were looking for wasn't the one who was really coming. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I don't eat certain things because I think it's not good for my health and and God has put that in the Bible. I worship on the Seventh-day Sabbath. I believe that Jesus is coming back again soon. And I have to be very careful that my prejudices, my own pride, doesn't get in the way of me being ready to meet Jesus face to face. 
Isaiah 61 is where Jesus is quoting from. Let's read it and see something crucial here because there's one more aspect that that Jesus intentionally left out that is what is part of what is enraging his town. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That word anoint is Mashiach. He's the anointed, the Messiah. This is the, one of the servant psalms talking about the Messiah who is to come. To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Sounds similar, right? It's pretty much the same thing. He's quoting maybe a little bit more from the Septuagint than from the Hebrew because that's the Bible that he would have had. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord... And the day of vengeance of our God. Does this sound familiar to what Jesus is saying? Sort of. He, he got the to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord part. And then Jesus stopped. Because they wanted to dwell upon the vengeance of God. They wanted to dwell upon how God was going to destroy the wicked. How he was going to take care of all this evil with force. And that was what they liked to dwell upon. And Jesus... Jesus knew that that this was true in the day of vengeance of our God. But he intentionally said, I'm not even going to read that to them because they can't handle it. That's what they like to dwell upon. That's what they fix their mind on. They fix their mind on this Messiah who's going to destroy all the wicked. Desire of Ages, page 240, says it this way. When Jesus in the synagogue read from the prophecy, he stopped short of the final specification concerning the Messiah's work. Having read the words to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he omitted the phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. This last expression was that upon which his hearers delighted to dwell, in which they were desirous of fulfilling. We want to see this vengeance. We want to help the Messiah destroy all this wickedness. They denounced judgments against the heathen, not discerning that their own guilt was even greater than that of others. They're pointing around at everybody else, not realizing that they are in greater danger of the vengeance of God than anybody else because they've had greater light than anybody else. In fact, that's what Jesus goes on to say. He said, hey, in the judgment, it's going to go better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum. Why? Because you saw all of my miracles. I was right there with you. And it's, it's a lot better for Sodom and Gomorrah. We have to be very careful about pointing the finger at everybody else. Because there's three fingers pointing back at us. It's my heart that I need to sit at the feet of Jesus and ask to be transformed. It goes on to say in verse, They themselves were in deepest need of the mercy. They were so ready to deny the heathen. They didn't want for the heathen to experience mercy, but they themselves were the ones who needed to receive mercy. This is the almighty king of the universe. Jesus, with one look, could instantly have have had all of them drop dead in that moment. He could have stopped them all from breathing in that moment. And they don't realize that in that moment, they need the mercy that they are so unwilling to give to the heathen, to the foreigners, to those out there. What does Jesus do? Then passing through the midst, he went his way. He's hidden from their sight, and he walks away. You see, Jesus, rather than treating them in the way that they wanted the heathen to be treated, as they are ready to throw him off the cliff, he could have, he could have, couldn't it have been self-defense? Wouldn't he have been justified? Self-defense, you know, just got to kill a few of these Nazarites so that, the Nazarenes, so that they, they recognize who I am. But instead he walks away. He extended the mercy to them that they were unwilling to extend to the heathen. And, it's pretty fascinating. Jesus comes back and tries one more time later on in the Gospels. And once again, they say, where did he get these words from? And then it says again, he left. And he could do only a few miracles there because of their lack of faith. They couldn't trust in God because they had a false picture of who God is. You know, Jesus frequently taught people to to pray to the Father, and he talked about his Father, and he wanted for 
all of Israel to understand that God was their father and that he was a gracious father to the whole world. And I've been thinking about parenting, obviously, quite a bit. And I just read this study that was done back in the 1960s. So the 1960s, you have this huge social upheaval that's about to take, where authority is going to be questioned on every level. And right at the beginning of this time period, a researcher by the name of Diana Baumrind decides that she's going to do research on what parenting does to children. And this is the question she asked. She said, how does our parenting, including our practice of authority, as well as love, affect our children's development of character and competence? So, so the authority that we exert over our children and the love that we extend to them, how does that impact our children? What effect does that have on them? And as we look at this study, I think it's very instructive for us into how we view our Heavenly Father. How does He use authority and love in our lives? So they, they picked 100 families, and they spent 50 hours a week with these families, watching them, observing them, taking notes. And they categorized the families, specifically the parents, into four parenting groups. The first parenting group was the disengaged. These are the parents who, they didn't really want to have kids. <laughs> they just have them. And so they neither used authority nor love in their relationship with the kids. They just, they were very disconnected from their kids. Sadly, there's a whole lot of people in the world who they either believe God doesn't exist or that if he does, he's very withdrawn, he's pulled back, he's very distant from his creation. The opposite of what Jesus came to reveal, that he's Emmanuel, God with us. But that's what a lot of people believe. What was the result of this type of parenting? The outcome was that the children of disengaged parents had the worst outcomes. Most did not do well in school and had problems with peer relationships. By the time they were teens, they had the lowest achievement scores of all the youth in the study and the highest levels of anxiety, depression, and drug abuse. And so often in my life, I target all of the actions rather than targeting what is it that I understand about God. So the second group of parents were the permissive parents. These are the parents who, yeah, we love our kids and, and we'll just love them so much that we'll let them do anything. That's a, and we'll use love. Maybe we'll withdraw love. Like that'll be the only consequence. We'll just kind of withdraw a little bit of love and then maybe they'll eventually do what we want them to do. Some people have a picture of God like that. God won't come in and tell you that this is the best way to live your life. God's going to just be permissive. He's got all this grace for you. Well, this is what happens with those who view parent, or who had parents who were just permissive. The children of permissive parents were typically low in self-control, low in consideration of others, and low in achievement motivation. As teens, they were, teens, they were more likely to use drugs than children whose parents were higher in demanding lists. It doesn't always work so well as a parent to simply give permission for absolutely everything. God loves us too much to not tell us what's going to hurt us and to give us the path of healing, to give us the way forward. He gives us the law because he loves us too much to not recognize the value of his authority. Then there was the authoritarian parents. These are the parents who, I'm going to read, uh, these are the parents who were very high on authority and showed very little love. It actually describes them as being very arbitrary, not being able to uh, exactly, their their kids didn't really understand why the rules were coming to them. Uh, They wouldn't explain it to them. They would have harsh consequences. The consequences often, I mean consequences probably is in the world, just punishments that didn't really align with what they had done. These are the authoritarian parents and this was the outcome. Children raised in this manner saw their parents as arbitrary and unapproachable. These children lacked confidence and were prone to anxiety, depression, and giving in to peer pressure. If we have this view of God, that He's just there to lay down the law in our lives, that He's just there to, yeah, he's, if, if I don't do what's right, then He's going to step in and He's going to chastise me and, and it's going to be this painful experience with God. If we have this picture of God that, that His law is just this list of, that he wants us to do in order to be saved. Rather than that he is revealing to us how he has designed the universe, that his law of love, that's how the universe works. It's based upon giving. 
and you stop giving, the consequence of that is death. It's just like with our plants up at the farm. We may have, we've mentioned this just recently, but those plants, what do they, they take in? What, what do they need from the air? They need carbon dioxide. You and I need oxygen, and we breathe out carbon dioxide. It's a perfect relationship with plants. We give of our carbon dioxide, and they, they take in our carbon dioxide, and they give out oxygen. And it's the cycle of giving. That's the way God has designed the universe to work, to give, to give, to give, to give. Tie a bag over your head and say, no, I am not going to give any more of my carbon dioxide away. From now on, plants will not have the privilege of my carbon dioxide. And what's going to happen to you? You'll die. The wages of sin is death. Getting out of harmony with God's character will destroy you. And that's why God won't let us just go on in our sin. He says, no, 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 no. This is the path of healing. This is the way that I have for you. And then there was one more group of parents. They were authoritative. And here's a description of what an authoritative parent looked like. They were warm and nurturing, encouraged individuality and age-appropriate independence, but also valued obedience to adult requirements. They knew where their children were and what they were doing. They praised positive behavior, gave rational explanations for their rules and expectations, and listened to their children's perspectives. You know, this may be um, over-idealistic, but I don't want Abby and Livy ever to say, well, why, Mom? Why, Dad? And we say, because I told you so. Just totally arbitrary, right? And I know it's a little over-idealistic. There may become a moment when we have to say that. But even in that, I would only want it to be because they've come to trust who we are. That the only reason we ever give them an instruction is because we want what's for their good. That's the place God wants to bring us to. Where we don't just look at, okay, so the Sabbath is there and I'm going to keep it because God said so and it's arbitrary. No, it's actually really valuable for your life because it's shaping your mind to fall in love with Jesus and to love the people around you. And Jesus knows that you and I need that day off. They engaged in give and take, but did not base their decisions solely on their children's desires. Consequences for misbehavior were logically related to the children's actions. Now this is really crucial, because a lot of Christians believe that you live a sinful life for 90, 100 years, and God is going to take you and He's going to sustain your life for unending ages in ceaseless torment while you writhe in pain because you spent 90 to 100 years living out of harmony with Him. That is not a picture of a loving God. And that is the picture that is on the church website for Robert Long. It's a picture of, of hell where it says there will be an endless torment for the wicked. And that hampers our ability to function as normal human beings on this planet. He goes on to say, the outcome for the authoritative children was these children with authoritative parents showed the highest level of confidence and respect for others, self-control, and school achievement. I want that for my daughters. But I want to experience that level of healing, that level of mental health in my own experience by recognizing who God is. You know, Robert Long, he went to these spas to destroy the temptations. He thought about killing himself. He's trying so hard to cut off these actions. He got a flip phone so that he wouldn't look at pornography. And if you struggle with pornography, get a flip phone by all means. It's, it's going to be helpful to you. But the heart is what has to change. Coming in contact with a loving Savior. He uh, checked himself into rehabilitation centers and he probably dealt with a lot of mental illness that we haven't yet, hasn't yet come to light. But all the hatred that was stirred up inside of him that led him to see those six Asian women, those two other adults, as the problem that led him to kill them so that others wouldn't be tempted by the evil things that they're doing, that comes from a false picture of God. It's just the reality. We're either going to be sealed into the character of the Lamb or marked with the character of the beast. 
And those who receive the mark of the beast and who have the, the mark in the hand or in the forehead, they're a part of those who in the end are first limiting the economic ability of those who don't follow along. First, they're saying, you can't buy or sell. And then that doesn't work. And so eventually they are imposing a death decree saying, we're going to put you to death because you don't follow along with what we think is important for establishing morality on this planet. That's the direction that Christianity is headed. Revelation paints that picture so very clearly. Which side are we going to be on in the end? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the last Bible passage we'll look at, Paul clearly describes how to engage in warfare against sin. How do we take care of the temptations in our life? It's not by going and buying a gun so that we can destroy those temptations. It's not by our outward weapons. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Okay, so, so though it's, the temptations are physical, They're all around us. It's not by merely focusing on the actions, the outward form, that we are going to experience victory in our lives. Verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now watch what the strongholds are. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The problem is our knowledge of God, who we view God to be, what his character is like. If we recognize him in all of his beauty, we will be changed by seeing that. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. God is passionate about your every thought that it would be captivated by the love of Jesus. That all you can think about is Jesus. That you see this, this God who came to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the captives, to proclaim this year of jubilee, to take care of those who are on the margins. And you say, I need your help too. And your every thought is directed toward this merciful Savior. And you say, I need you every hour, every moment, every second of every day. The lady on the left here was killed at one of the spas this past week. Her two sons set up, actually her one son, Randy, set up a GoFundMe account. And let me just read to you just briefly uh, what he said about his mom here. My mother, Hyun Jung Grant, maiden name Kim, was one of the victims of the shootings in Atlanta, Georgia at Gold Spa. This is something that should never happen to anyone. She was a single mother who dedicated her whole life to providing for my brother and I. It's only my brother and I in the United States. and Now they don't even have their single mom anymore. The rest of my family is in South Korea and are unable to come. She was one of my best friends and the strongest influence on who we are today. Losing her, notice this part, losing her has put a new lens on my eyes on the amount of hate that exists in our world. Suddenly, Randy's looking at the world and he's saying, I have a whole new lens. I realize that this world is so full of hatred. It's so full of selfishness. How could this have happened? Why was my mom taken from me? Friends, Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted. The good news is for Randy. And the good news is that the Spirit of God is working on people all over this planet to be in line with the character of God. And just a little illustration of this is he set up this GoFundMe and he said, I need $20,000 so that I can bury my mom and and just pay for the bare minimum expenses for my brother. And I promise it's just going to go for that. So I looked at this GoFundMe yesterday. $1 million. I looked at the GoFundMe just before church, $2,392,340. This isn't one big donor. The biggest donor, it says right there, the top donation has been (laughs) $5,000. $2,000,000 given to this family that is hurting in the midst of this crisis. And look at what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, In his response to this, he said, I don't know how any word I write here will ever convey how grateful and blessed I am to receive this much support. Sharing and listening was more than enough. Thank you so much. And to those of you that have donated any amount of money. And look at what he says. 
to put it bluntly, I can't believe you guys exist. People I will probably never meet, hear, nor express my thanks to. This is simply a change in my life. I don't even think I have a proper grasp on how much this money was worth, but every cent of it will be used only in pure necessity. I will live the rest of my days grateful for what has essentially given my family a second chance. And I don't even believe, I can't believe you guys exist. There are people out there who are manifesting the love of Jesus. And that's what you and I are called to do. We are called to be the hands and feet of Christ, to heal the brokenhearted, to be there for those who are in the midst of crisis, to not stand in judgment about this group or that group, but to just step in there and love them. Our love is to increase and abound for all. And if it is not, then we are in danger of the same thing that happened in Nazareth, that we, when Jesus comes back, will be running from him rather than running to him. We've got to open our hearts wide to this gentle healer. We've got to come to the feet of Jesus every day. We've got to open our Bibles and say, Jesus, would you reveal your loving character to me? Would you help me to see that you're not just this permissive God that allows anything to go? You're not this distant God who who is nowhere near me. You're not even this authoritative God who's just telling me what to do. You're a God who steps in in love and says this is the path to healing. He's a gentle healer. And he wants every day, every moment of every day, for your thoughts to be taken captive to the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, who are you? How incredible you are. God of the universe would come and become Emmanuel, God with us, to reveal that you are a gentle healer. A God who comes close. A God who loves. And Lord, right now, we just want to give you a moment. Just, just another time in silence where, where we can, can ask you, is there something about our, our picture of who you are that's distorted, that is leading to the, the dysfunction in our life, that's leading us to the way that we treat people, that's, that's leading us to the addictions in our life? And Father, maybe you want just now to, to give us an idea of how we can, can take more time, we can block out another space in our day, or how we can purposefully set up habits that will help us to fix our eyes on your love so that we can be captivated by Jesus, so that our love can increase and abound toward all. Father, please captivate us with your love. May our every thought be fixed on Jesus, and may we not be the same people next week. May we be more like Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.